Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's hearing by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which focused on the pressure Trump put on the Department of Justice to get the DOJ to add its credibility to Trump's bogus Stop the Steal lies. Joining us is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcome of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. The author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, his most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America and Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. And we will discuss the revelations in the Oval Office from top DOJ officials appointed by Trump and how Republican Congressman Perry, Gates, Brooks, Gomert, Biggs and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene all sought pardons from Trump, presumably because they knew they broke the law. Then we'll examine today's unsurprising but devastatingly dangerous opinion by the Supreme Court to strike down gun safety laws in New York and other urban blue states like New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts and California. Joining us is Saul Cornell, the Paul and Diane Gunther Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? His latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court, and we will discuss what would have happened on January the 6th had this ruling been in effect, meaning that the mob who attacked the Capitol would have been armed, making the insurrection much more violent with bullets flying and untold bloodshed. Then finally, we will assess what alternative legal doctrine to the Supreme Court's majority of originalists and other liberal strategies can be employed against the right-wing juggernaut of Federalist Society judges now dominating the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. Joining us is Brad Snyder, a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law, constitutional history, and sports law. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, The Supreme Court and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. And we will discuss his article at CNN, How Liberals Should Rethink Their View of the Supreme Court. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Alan Lickman, who is a professor of political science and an historian at American University who studied the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President, and his prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. He's the author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, and his most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America and Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. What did you make of today's hearings where the focus was on the pressure that was put on the Justice Department by Donald Trump and the acting attorney general and his his deputy were witnesses and uh, the testimony was pretty damning, as, as is all the previous testimony. So what did you think of today's testimony? It chilled me to the bone. And it chilled me to the bone because it pointed out how close Trump came to pulling off his coup. He came so close to pulling off his coup that the White House had announced that his sycophant, uh, Jeffrey Clark, 
who was going to throw a huge monkey wrench in the election with allegations of fraud, was already announced as acting attorney general. So, Alan, um, I found uh, the description of the meeting in the Oval Office, what, a couple of days before January the 6th, really extraordinary how he had his White House lawyer there, Pat Cipollone, his deputy. He had the two guys that testified today, Rosen and Donahue, and the third guy, too, that testified as well. And then you had this this <laughs> ridiculous character, Jeffrey Clark, who's house was the subject of an FBI dawn um, raid and he was had to stand outside the house in his pajamas while they went through his stuff but the f- the frankness with which in front of Trump they kept telling Jeffrey Clark you're completely unqualified you're an, you're an yeah. idiot you're a yeah. joke i mean but yeah. this is what Trump's about isn't it i mean he'll scrape to the well, bottom of no the barrel joke. it's no joke it chilled me to the bone because it revealed just how close Trump claimed to pulling off his coup. He was so close to making Jeffrey Clark his sycophant, who was going to throw a huge monkey wrench into, into the election process right before January 6th as attorney general. The White House even announced Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general, and it was only thwarted at the 11th hour and the 59th minute by the threat of mass resignations by the entire leadership of justice. And that persuaded Trump, not because uh, he was cared about the truth of the matter, because that would look so bad for him. As one of the uh, officials put it, uh, Mr. Clark would be presiding over a graveyard, as his White House counsel, Mr. Cipollone, put it. This was a murder-suicide pact, but it's one that came within inches of succeeding. And let's also remember, you know, despite all of Trump's claims that this is just a bunch of Democrats, you know, attacking him in a witch hunt, all of those witnesses were loyal Republicans appointed by Donald Trump as the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. Mr. Engel said, I've been with you, Mr. Trump, throughout this process, but this is a bridge too far, and I can't go with you. The other thing that I think both this hearing and uh, all the other hearings have made clear, how ridiculous it is, and so many commentators have made this mistake, to even think about, well, did Donald Trump really believe that the election was stolen? That completely misunderstands Donald Trump. There is no concept of truth as fact for Donald Trump. Truth is purely transactional for Donald Trump. This is a guy who said, my net worth is whatever I decide it's going to be at a given day, or, you know, uh, that it's okay to use uh, hyperbole when I only decide how far the hyperbole goes and cooking up deals, you know, documented by the Washington Post, tens of thousands of lies during his presidency. Trump never cared, and this hearing made it so clear one way or the other about the truth of election fraud. This was always just a transactional instrument on his part, not to uphold some principle, but simply to illegally stay in power. That's why he bounced from one justification to another, because it was never an issue of what the truth was. It was simply, what can I use to stay in power? Stay in power, and at this point, he's making a comeback, and there's a possibility that he might declare his presidency relatively soon in order to give him some protection, even though the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department has this ruling that no sitting president can be indicted. But the idea that he he would be a candidate may help him in that regard. But I, I bring this up because this man is clearly... One, he wanted to hold on to power at all costs and would come up with anything. It didn't matter, as you point out. It's all just ridiculous to even even repeat his lies and, and as they piled up. But isn't he really all about getting back to the presidency to protect himself with that OLC decision that he can't be indicted? Yes. He, 
I mean, isn't yes. that what's driving That's, him? Yes. And, you know, more broadly, what is also so chilling here is the coup is not over. The coup was so narrowly thwarted the last time, but it may not be thwarted the next time. You know, there are a lot of Trump election deniers running for critical positions. For example, the governorship of Pennsylvania, secretaries of state positions throughout the country. And, you know, you may not have a Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, standing up the next time around. It's really very, very frightening. Look, uh, Trump can be indicted. He's not a sitting president anymore. I never understood what went on in the uh, New York uh, AG's office. You know, three years they're sitting on all this incredibly explosive information about Trump's tax fraud. You know, it was admitted that he inflated one property by $200 million. You know, if you own a, a few rental properties, you know, say worth a million dollars, you claim they're really worth $20 million, you take a $6 million tax deduction, you'd be in jail faster than you can say Mitch McConnell. You know, what were those prosecutors, what is that prosecutor thinking? Or, you know, what in the world is Merrick Garland doing? You know, I know Merrick. He's an old friend of mine. I've known him since the 60s. I thought he was maybe the best judge in America. I just wonder if he has the temperament to be a prosecutor. I'm still giving him the benefit of the doubt, but he's got to move quickly. You know, there are so many crimes that Trump has committed that are indictable and you know, Republicans, when they were prosecuting Bill Clinton and impeaching him, kept intoning, no one is above the law. The same law applies to the peasant and the king. Why isn't the law being applied to Donald Trump? You know, throughout his life, and I point this out in my book, The Case for Impeachment, he's never been held accountable for anything. It's high time he does. The future of our republic may depend upon it. So... Do you think it would be helpful, though, as much as they've gone to great lengths, the committee, to show how much he's lied and how Giuliani, his consigliere, never provided any real evidence? They, it's just, you know, I won and, and Biden lost and without any facts involved. They've very painstakingly made that case. But surely the, the real trajectory here is, as January the 6th was an attempted fascist coup, this is fascist fascist coup 2.0. This is, as you point out, they've even got more advantages this time because they've got people in, installed in Secretary of State's offices that will go along with uh, Trump's lies. So would it be helpful, do you think, to contextualize this whole committee hearing in the context of this is America's chance to avoid American fascism because it's just around the corner? Well, I'm a little reluctant to use that term because once you use that term, a lot of people in the middle think it's hyperbole and you're overstating. I prefer to say this is perhaps America's last chance to save our democracy. This is one of the inflection points in our democracy. We've had them before, the contested elections of 1800. 1876 and 2000, of course, in the Civil War and in Watergate. And we've come through all of those, sometimes very narrowly. But there's no guarantee that democracy will survive. Democracy is precious, but precious things can be destroyed. You know, in the golden age of democracy after World War I, we went from almost nothing to about two dozen democracies. That was down to 11 by the early 1940s. And it is not guaranteed that our democracy is going to survive. You know, I've been telling everyone I know, look, I understand the problems of inflation and the economy. But you know what? Inflation comes and goes. And the truth is, there's not much a president can do about inflation because bigger economic forces drive it. And the Republicans don't have an answer for it anyway. But once you lose your democracy, it's gone. You're not going to you're not going to get it back. So you've got to take a longer term view and prioritize the saving of democracy above anything else. 
So you were suggesting that you're not entirely confident that Merrick Garland is the prosecutor that's needed. This case is being handed to him on a platter by this committee because anybody who's watched these hearings, and I wish more Americans, and particularly Trump supporters and Republicans had watched it um, because they're avidly refusing to do so, but this is clearly Trump's Republican Party today and his people that reflect his kind of character or the lack thereof were all named today as wanting to seek pardons. Uh, so, Unbelievable. Uh, and yeah. as, as Adam Kissinger said, uh, the only reason I know to ask for a pardon is because you think you've committed a crime. So this means that Representative Scott Perry, Representative Matt Gates, Representative Mo Brooks, Representative Louis Gohmert, Representative Andy Biggs, and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene could be in a lot of trouble. And they are the face of the new GOP, are they not? They are, and I think they're all in trouble. I think uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Steve Bannon, a host of other, uh, Jeffrey Clark, a host of other Trump loyalists are in deep trouble uh, as well. But the question is, you know, will prosecutors have the courage and the backbone to do something about this? If they don't, then Trump and his cronies are going to continue to do it. You know, I've been an athlete all my life. And one thing I've learned from sports, and sports is a good metaphor for life. Uh, if you're successful at something in sports, you keep doing it until you're stopped. And same thing here. Trump's going to keep doing what he's doing. His allies are going to keep doing what he's doing until he's stopped. And the only way to be, that he's going to be stopped is to hold him accountable under the law. You know, I've said you can summarize the problems of American politics right now in four words, immoral Republicans, spineless Democrats. You know, we've all heard that quotation. It's not just the evil people who create tragedies in the world. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing. And so far, uh, Democratic prosecutors, you know, from New York, to the DOJ have done nothing. Now, they still have time to do something, but if they don't act, then I think our republic is in very serious peril. Well, the case that bothers you, and it certainly bothers me, Alan, of course, is is the New York District Attorney's case. And it looks like they had a really solid case. And remember, the two really experienced prosecutors quit in protest because the new DA, Alvin Bragg, just dropped the whole case without any explanation. So given the corruption of Trump and his conciliary, Rudy Giuliani, and their background in New York with their sort of mafia-like behavior and the tutoring of Roy Cohn and the general mob boss attitude that Trump has... Uh, it's not entirely out of the question that somehow Alvin Bragg's got something to answer to. Yeah, I, I just have no idea. I'm, uh, you know, there's an old English expression called being gobsmacked. I'm gobsmacked by the inaction in New York. But even before Bragg took over, they were sitting on it for over two years. You know, some of the tax returns were leaked by uh, the New York Times years ago. And I'm no expert, but I do my own taxes. And it was patently obvious, you know, what that Trump was cheating on his taxes. You know, what took two to three years to figure this out? I don't get it. I'm, as I said, I'm gobsmacked by whatever it is that seems to paralyze these Democratic prosecutors from doing the right thing. Well, um, just in closing, it looks as if having a couple of Republicans on this panel makes all the difference with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Yes, it's critical that you have the two Republicans. And also, I would remind everyone, it's not a bunch of Democratic witnesses that are giving this incredibly damning testimony regarding Donald Trump and his top allies. It's all loyal, conservative Republicans. Uh, Speaker Bowers in Arizona, who gave some of the most daring testimony, even went so far as to say, I vote for Trump again, even though I've just said he's tried to destroy our Constitution. So it's Republicans who are sinking Trump, not Democrats. Well, Alan Lickman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Take care. Bye bye. 
And again, I'll be speaking with Alan Lickman, who teaches political science and is an historian at American University who studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President, and his prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted Trump victory. He's the author of the national bestsellers, The Case for Impeachment, and his most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America and Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining today's unsurprising but devastatingly dangerous opinion by the Supreme Court to strike down gun safety laws in New York and other urban blue states. It's like being on trial for your life with a public defender. Let the jury fill the seats up and start the court calendar off with docket number 9mm. All rise, the Honorable Jay-Z preside. Instead of a mallet, I hold a tool. All objections overruled. Save your opening arguments. Hope you understand it. Two guns, right over left. That's how I cross-examine. Like Tom Cruise, popping with the top gun. You lose. No lie. Y'all can't handle the truth. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Saul Cornell, the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Saul Cornell. Well, Ian, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Second Amendment went to court and the Supreme Court ruled against the New York law that had restrictions on open carry of handguns, etc. And this ruling, of course, is not going to just affect New York, but other blue states that have restrictions on guns, such as California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Maryland, and some others as well. So... This is not a surprising ruling, but still a pretty shocking one, is it not? It is not surprising based on the oral argument. I think most people thought it would um, play out this way. The level of ignorance and self-deception and ideological manipulation might uh, be a little surprising, even by the incredibly low standards that this court has set for itself. And the fact that unlike any other area of American constitutional law, making history so uh, determinative of how we order our affairs today is really quite unusual. History has always been an important part of American constitutional law. Indeed, history is important of all uh, of the common law systems in the world, you know, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. But the idea that somehow if you can't show that the law that you want to enact to deal with the problem that you face is either directly traceable or clearly analogous to a law passed by a state legislature in the slave south, that's a little bit crazy. But that seems to be what the court is saying. So just to elaborate on what you said about self-deception, are they, is this going back to Scalia and the Heller decision? that is that what's allowed this reversal? Well, I think Heller certainly set a bad example and Heller got much of the history wrong. But I think uh, Justice Thomas has um, has dropped the bar from the already low standard that uh, Justice Scalia set in Heller. There are just some claims in this that no one familiar with uh, American legal history could 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 agree with. I mean, he basically claims that there was no enforcement of gun laws before the Civil War. That's ridiculous. Um, he has some very clear evidence, both in terms of statutes and cases from Texas. And he just says, well, Texas is not representative. Uh, therefore, we could just cast aside Texas. Uh, he ignores that there were millions of people, including millions of people in California, living under restrictive gun regulations, not that dissimilar to the one that New York uh, had in place by the end of the 19th century, uh, 20 years before New York's law was on the books. But that history is either irrelevant or he doesn't know about it, which I don't know which is worse, whether, you know, the, it raises the question, are you dealing with a knave or a fool? I mean, I really don't know anymore with, with Justice Thomas. His, his dependence on history um, has always puzzled me, but his 
his gifts as a historian are so abysmal, uh, it's kind of intellectually embarrassing. So just though, to go back to Hello, how much did that decision, which seemed to turn the Second Amendment on its head, affect this trajectory? In other words, did it open the door? Because my understanding, if you read the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, that's the predicate. You know, when you look at all these gun massacres to the point where American parents are worried about sending their kids to schools, you can't go to churches or malls or cinemas without the possibility of being slaughtered by some young man with a military-style assault rifle. So I'm surprised that, I guess in the Supreme Court, there's no point because of the supermajority of the far right, they, they don't listen to arguments. But in the, in the broad country itself, can't you make the argument that we are neither free or secure, which is what the predicate of the Second Amendment's about? Well, I think that's, that's correct. I mean, basically, what you had in Heller was, first of all, essentially erasing the first part of the amendment and reading it backwards, uh, neither of which is a standard method of legal interpretation, at least had not been done before Heller. So you've got this invocation of, of text and the importance of reading the text. But then you have these bizarre rules that are not justified by uh, either history tradition or really anything other than Scalia's effort to get to where he wanted to go, which is to vindicate this, this holy grail for the right in America, which is this uh, vision of the Second Amendment completely detached from its 18th century roots in a well-regulated militia. So he accomplished that, uh, but it took a while for courts to sort of figure out what to do with this novel interpretation. And now the other thing about this case is it's, it, it has essentially uh, rejected the approach taken by most courts. Uh, one of the things about the decision is it says you can't only history, text, and tradition matter. That's the only thing. That's the only metric for whether a law is consistent with the Second Amendment. Um, any attention to whether or not you know the, the so-called second step of analysis in the two-step uh, test that the lower courts have been using, which, which brings into consideration legitimate government interests and issues of, uh, of balancing public safety against the self-defense interests of gun owners, that's now off the table, which is quite remarkable. Well, it does seem that we have a situation where these textualists, uh, like Thomas and Scalia, if it's not written in the original text, then it's it's unconstitutional. And in this case, it, it really is written in the original text, but they've just decided to ignore the predicate, the first part of the text, and only focus on the second. And, and Heller allowed them to put guns in homes, and now this New York decision allows them to put guns on the street. Yes, it's an, it's an ironic form of textualism that basically says uh, the text matters when I want it to matter and doesn't much matter when I don't want it to matter. So what can uh, New York and the other blue states like California, Massachusetts, Maryland, etc., do to stop us turning into Texas? Right. Ironically, uh, stop us from turning into the modern Texas, but not the historical Texas, because the historical Texas had very tight gun laws. So that's another irony that seems to have eluded Justice Thomas. So uh, this raises an important point, because after the previous decisions, Heller and McDonald, states and localities acted in a, I would say, irresponsible and moronic fashion, which is to say they just passed laws that didn't really take the Supreme Court's decision all that seriously. And so that's why we got the McDonald decision, because uh, Chicago refused to actually create a law that was compliant with Heller. I actually spoke with people at Chicago when they were talking about defending it. And I said, why didn't you rewrite the law to make it more compliant? And Basically, the, what I was told is the mayor at the time didn't really want to do that. He wanted to fight the gun lobby because it was good for his numbers at the polls. So hopefully now uh, places like New York will be chastened uh, and hopefully New York will approach this in a slightly smarter fashion. 
and figure out how to tailor laws that are compliant with this decision, despite the fact that this decision has narrowed uh, the range of laws that are going to be constitutional. It has basically uh, uh, given us a much more narrow template to work with. So the question is, how do we make that template the most effective framework for going forward? And again, I'm speaking with Saul Cornell, the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. So obviously the governor of New York and the mayor of New York are appalled by this decision, as is the president of the United States, who said he's deeply disappointed and that the ruling contradicts both common sense and the Constitution and should trouble us all. The NRA, of course, is celebrating. The NRA also were behind helping the plaintiffs in this case, Robert Nash and Brandon Koch, who were two New Yorkers who applied for concealed carry permits, but were denied. The Koch is not in, related to the Koch brothers, is, is he by any chance? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, there is this phenomenon of Supreme Court shopping where they they find the right person, like Citizens United, and then uh, in the case of Heller, they also did Supreme Court shopping where they find a case that they think can fast, they can fast-track to the Supreme Court. I'm just wondering whether this one had uh, part of that methodology. Well, there's no question that the gun lobby has been extremely clever uh, in terms of their strategic framing of these cases. They look for uh, jurisdictions that are, are good to make their challenges. They look for plaintiffs that are likable as opposed to unlikable. The first big gun case um, that worked its way up through the federal courts dealt with a pedophile who threatened his former wife and daughter. Too bad that case didn't go forward. Perhaps the Supreme Court might have looked at it somewhat differently than the Heller decision where you had a, a you know, someone who carried a gun as part of their uh, employment during the day but was not allowed to carry a gun at home. So perhaps we can see government get uh, take a few cues from the strategic thinking that has led this gun rights revolution and do a little uh, legal jujitsu and, and and turn it back and turn it towards what I think was the original understanding of the Second Amendment, which is whatever you think the first part meant and whatever you think the last part meant, the part that you focused on, the middle of the amendment, which talks about the security of the free state, that whatever we do, both in terms of gun rights or gun regulation, it has to be reconciled with the necessity of a free state. And gun anarchy and gun violence are not consistent with the security of the free state. And so we need to do something about that. Well, we all had a lesson in that very issue, surely, on January the 6th, where you had a violent mob storm the citadel of American democracy, the Capitol. Fortunately, because of D.C. gun laws... They weren't all armed, but now they can be, right? Yes. Uh, so one wonders um, what will happen to uh, the Supreme Court, who unfortunately have become uh, targets themselves by extremists. What are they going to do now when armed protesters decide they want to march into their neighborhood? Are they going to uh, affirm their Second Amendment rights? Well, we, you know, sometime later today, of course, the Senate will vote on uh, gun control laws in response to the shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas. Apparently, they've got enough Republicans signed up to break the filibuster, and they have to, to take the vote later today. I don't know whether the Supreme Court decision is going to affect that vote, is it? Would any of the Republicans would decide to renege on their promises because of this uh, Supreme Court decision? Anyone's guess. I mean, it could go either way. Perhaps um, it'll cause some to get cold feet. Maybe others who were fearful that this went too far with this decision in place will now feel like it's not such a threat, although I think that's overly optimistic. 
but you never know. Right. So again, um, is there anything the public can do? I mean, there were marches a what a couple of weekends ago by gun safety advocates across the country. Um, well, I mean, basically, we have all the tools we always have. We have uh, the First Amendment. Uh, we have the right to vote. We have the right to petition. You can choose to contribute to organizations working to promote gun safety and reduce gun violence. So we have what are the fundamental tools for any representative government, which is rallying the people and throwing the bums out. Although in the case of Supreme Court, a little bit harder to throw the bums out since they have life tenure. But, you know, presumably if we got um, if we got a large enough majority, they could change, change you know, the, the composition of the court by increasing its size or doing some other kinds of reforms that have been proposed. But none of that will happen unless there's a groundswell of popular uh, support around this issue. Well, I think this one uh, is going to wake up a lot of people, isn't it? And then the, the next one on abortion, if it goes the way that the draft opinion indicated, uh, maybe there's at least two wake-up calls there. Yes. Um, I have to say that this particular term of the Supreme Court and this particular court has likely ensured that its place in history is up there with the court that decided Dred Scott, which is really not something you want your grandchildren to read about in their history textbooks. When if they they're allowed to read what about did you it. do, uh, Grandpa or Grandma, when you were on the Supreme Court and their kids will find out that they engaged in some of the most egregious manipulation of, of evidence and ideological judging in modern American history. But I said if they're allowed to read about it, that's one of the, th the things that the far right's doing is they're sanitizing history and burning books. Well, now you've really depressed me. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at that. Well, Saul, I, I, thank, you very, I, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it offers its judgment, but maybe not. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for, for all of your efforts and coverage of these important topics. And again, I'm speaking with Saul Cornell, who's the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of a well-regulated militia, the founding fathers and the origins of gun control in America, whose right to bear arms did the Second Amendment protect. And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. We can take a brief station break and back with an assessment of alternative legal doctrines to the Supreme Court majority of originalists and other strategies liberals can employ against the right-wing juggernaut of Federalist Society judges now dominating the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down And his mother cried as he walked out don't take your guns to town, son, leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He laughed and kissed his mom and said, you're Billy Joe's a man. I can shoot it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brad Snyder, who's a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law, constitutional history, and sports law. He's the author of the forthcoming Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. And he has an article at CNN, How Liberals Should Rethink Their View of the Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing. Brad Snyder. Thanks so much for having me, and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we've heard for many decades now about liberal judges and uh, activists on the Supreme Court and in, in, in the judiciary. But it does seem that the shoe is on the other foot now. And as you point out in your article at CNN, uh, Brad, how liberals should rethink their view of the Supreme Court, uh, the last time liberals controlled the majority of the Supreme Court was 53 years ago, and now, of course, it's a 6-3 conservative, or many argue ultra-conservative uh, majority. So I guess 
what you're calling for in the article is at least for uh, liberals to come up with a countervailing judicial philosophy to the conservatives' constitutional theory of originalism. Is that right? It's absolutely right. I mean, I think in some ways the liberals are um, to blame for their current predicament because, as I wrote in my article, you know, conservatives have been developing this theory for originalism, of originalism for the last 30 years, and, and liberals, their strategy, or was even sort of a tactic, was, well, if only we could find that fifth vote, right? You know, if only we can get that swing justice to take our position. And, and that's not really a, a long-term strategy or a theory about the way the Constitution should be interpreted. And I, I just think they need something that resonates rather than say that, that, that sort of keep poking holes in originalism from now to the end of time. I think um, that's necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. Obviously, we're all anticipating the ruling on abortion based upon the leaked uh, Dobbs versus Jackson overturning Roe v. Wade. It would seem that it shouldn't be a surprise that Roe will be overturned. But what do you make of today's ruling, which basically takes away the ability of blue states to regulate their gun safety laws? How does that fit into originalism, and how could a liberal countervailing argument be generated? Well, as I wrote in my piece, I think some liberal theory of the Constitution has to be grounded in democracy. Right? This idea that the Constitution, all it did was set up a framework for government. And the framework of our government is, is a democratic one. And I, I think a trend of this conservative court over the last, let's say since John Roberts was was the chief justice since about 2005 or so, has been a hostility to democracy, a hostility to Congress, a hostility to legislatures, um, state legislatures. And I think that, that, that this gun rights decision in Bruin is just part and parcel of that. You know, this is a pretty reasonable piece of legislation. Um, it it, it is, has a long um, historical practice in the 20th century um, to prevent people um, from um, concealed carry in public places. And, but the court really focuses on only one thing, history, right? It, it, their decision today says, look, this is contrary to the history at the time of the founding. And if it's contrary to the history at the time of the founding, it's unconstitutional. Now, that history, I might add, is hotly contested. But at least the court's reading of that history says that the New York law, um, nothing like it existed at the time um, that the Constitution was drafted. Therefore, it's unconstitutional. And, and you know, I think um, the liberal view of constitutional interpretation is we have to look at a lot of different things. We have to look at the text of the Constitution. We have to look at history. We have to look at stru the structure of the Constitution. Um, you know, all of those things have to factor in. And the, the kind of really remarkable thing about Justice Thomas's opinion about how was how focused it was um, on only history, as Justice Breyer pointed out in his dissent. In terms of the of this um, decision on gun rights in blue states, when you talk about originalism, which of course Justice Thomas is, is a leading proponent of, or textualism, I guess, which is I assume is pretty much the same thing. How do they then justify? the text of the Second Amendment, which says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the citizen right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, the first part of that, the predicate, is essentially was completely lost, or if not disappeared, in the Heller decision, which laid the groundwork for today's decision, did it not? Ian, you're, you're 100% right. I, I'll make one kind of law professor quibble with you. I think there's a difference between textualism and originalism. I think the text, as you so correctly point out, does not support the majority's opinion, does not support Justice Thomas's opinion, because um, the, the, the predicate about a well-regulated militia frames the entire issue. And if you um, look at Justice Breyer's dissent, right? it's really long, but it's really good. 
Um, he talks about how all of the subsequent work done by linguistic scholars since Heller came out shows that the right to bear arms, the idea of bearing arms, by looking at all of the, the, the sort of aggregated data from the time the Second Amendment was passed and all the sources in, in the 18, late 18th century, you know, 18th century, show that bearing arms is only related to the military. So that sort of supports your, your question that, hey, this was really just meant for militias. So the federal government just wouldn't have all the guns. So the state governments could have guns too, right? And, and that's a pretty popular interpretation of the Second Amendment. This is what I mean by um, the history of this. It's really hotly contested. And why judges are really bad at history, and they're really bad at history because they tend to do law office history. And what I mean by that is they, they tend to be very results oriented and just pick and choose the pieces of history that support the outcome that they want. So I agree with you 100 percent that the text of the, of the Second Amendment does not really support this idea that there is an individual right to bear arms in self-defense because the words self-defense aren't in the Second Amendment, the words individual rights aren't in the Second Amendment, and as Justice Stevens pointed out in his Heller dissent, there were a lot of state constitutions that used the word self-defense um, in their state constitutions to try, to try to protect that individual right in a way that the U.S. Constitution did not. Well, I would focus, though, Brad, on two words in the predicate of the Second Amendment being necessary for the security of a free state. Well, can't you make the case that we are no longer secure and free if you can't send your kids to school without being afraid they're going to be shot, if you can't go to a mall without being afraid of some kid with a, a, an assault rifle mowing shoppers down or in a movie theater or in a church? Is that an emotional argument on my part or could that argument have some standing? No, that's not an emotional argument, but I just think the problem is bigger than that, right? It's even bigger than the Second Amendment. It's do we want the Supreme Court making policy across a whole number of, of issues, whether it's gun rights or abortion or affirmative action? Do we want the Supreme Court, by a six to three vote, making national policy on all these issues and usurping the ability of of certain states, certainly more populous states, you know, that are more densely populated, as Justice Breyer wrote in his opinion, um, from having stricter gun laws than, say, in more rural areas like Wyoming or Montana, right? So, you know, it's this idea of the, of the Supreme Court acting like a third legislative chamber should really give people pause um, who believe in our form of government. So let's talk about what you could describe as a power grab. And my understanding is that you recall that uh, Stephen Bannon said one of his ambitions is to deconstruct the regulatory state. And apparently there is this doctrine on the part of the conservatives, uh, particularly the majority on the Supreme Court, called the non-delegation doctrine that goes back to the New Deal. And we're, seeing, uh, we're already seeing the possibility of the Supreme Court conservative majority making really sweeping decisions. Uh, we're awaiting the EPA decision, which will take away the EPA's ability to regulate the air and water, which will neutralize it or neuter it in terms of dealing with the great challenge of global warming, which our children and grandchildren will be facing in, in a catastrophic way if, unless something is done. Uh, we've already seen uh, OSHA rules being attacked and CDC rules uh, with that decision to end the mask mandate. So this is this really something we should be worried about? Because I've talked to a, a, a number of legal scholars and they, they say this is the real, the real threat as opposed to even, even though people are really exercised about Roe v. Wade, the idea that anything to do with public, the expertise of the government and the government department will literally be supplanted by unelected judges in robes. I, I totally agree. I, I really think that um, although the, much of the public's attention is focused on abortion rights, um, that the much bigger issue is this idea, this revival 
of a doctrine, the non-delegation doctrine, that was widely discredited. There were two Supreme Court decisions in 1935 that relied on this non-delegation doctrine to um, strike down Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal legislation. And the court, two years later, repudiated those cases. And no one has cited those cases until recently as anything but bad law. And here, kind of like a zombie, this current court is reviving non-delegation to uh, shrink the administrative state and and preventing the federal government from governing, because um, there's no way that that Congress can write laws with the degree of specificity that the justices on the Supreme Court would like. Um, you know, the non, you know, the, the idea of administrative agencies is to allow experts to write regulations, right, that, that embody the spirit and the letter of these laws. But there's no way that, that if, if non-delegation um, gets revived and the court um, strikes down this discretion given to experts at administrative agencies, um, that Congress could, could possibly gov- govern the country, um, you know, as you said, um, in terms of environmental like regulations, but all the way across the board, right? Think about the CDC. Uh, you know, there are lots of, of, of ways where this will have a huge impact on our national life. So people should be worried about the revival of the non-delegation doctrine. It's just hard to explain, but it's really where all the action is. Well, in terms of the decision that was handed down today on taking away New York's what, over 100-year-old gun safety laws, can you imagine what it would be like if on January the 6th when those, that mob stormed the Capitol? The one thing that seemed to restrain them, even though they wanted to hang Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi and whatever else their ambitions were, they weren't armed because of the D.C. gun laws. But you imagine if that mob that stormed the Capitol were armed like these malicious have access to uh, military weapons. What a what a different story it would be, and and that's where I wonder is you know if if, if we're on the same planet as uh, as Justice Thomas and others. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the January sixth was horrifying enough w- without the mob being armed with guns. I can't imagine um, if they had been what would have happened, and and how many um, Capitol Hill police officers. Uh, would have lost their lives. Um, but but I, I, I agree, at some point, the Supreme Court may get so far out of step with public opinion um, that, that, you know, a backlash occurs. And I think that's what the court saw in 1935, you know, when it invoked the non-delegation doctrine to strike down Roosevelt's very popular New Deal programs. And then Roosevelt gets reelected in 1936 by an overwhelming margin. The court had no choice but to sort of yield. And and that's why I really think liberals need to focus on democracy and the democratic political process. And that the best way to show their displeasure with the Supreme Court's decisions is not to protest the justices' houses, but um, to elect people to the United States Senate and um, to the White House and and, um, to state legislatures um, to pass new laws and to challenge the court's decisions that way. And as you write in your article, uh, Brad, Chief Justice John Marshall's 1819 opinion in McCulloch versus Maryland, Marshall describes the Constitution as a great outline that was intended to endure for ages to come and to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. And somehow that's clearly gotten lost. But how do you just in practical terms, I mean, as far as I know, you've got the Federalist Society that's been amazingly effective with one man, Leonard Leo, literally handpicking almost all of these uh, Supreme Court justices uh, on the right and then also stacking the judiciary on the right. And many of them uh, that Trump's appointed are very young. And it's an incredible irony that historians will look back at Donald Trump as probably the worst president in American history, but he managed to appoint more Supreme Court justices, I think, than any other president. He got three, which is an amazing irony. So how do you, given that Leonard Leo was able to raise, what, a quarter of a billion dollars, $250,000, as far as I know, the only countervailing organization 
is the American Constitution Society, and they no, have nowhere near the Federalist power. So if you're going to end up having to turn to, the, to getting more senators and congressmen and liberals in the White House, how about the ground game in terms of money and influence vis-a-vis the power of the Federalists? Well, I, I think uh, obviously money matters and, and, and striking down campaign finance laws really hurt. But, but I, I just think winning, ele- you know, the priority has got to really be on winning elections and explaining to people what the stakes are, right? That, that elections have consequences. And, and when Donald Trump won the election, that had, you know, enormous consequences. As you point out, he, he was able to nominate three Supreme Court justices and, and a, a, a lot of young lower court justices. I, I, I just think people need to know what the stakes are. That if they don't, if they're unhappy with the Supreme Court's decisions, that, that what they can do about it is, you know, go vote and and elect more people. I think that was the, I think FDR showed us the blueprint, right? When the country was really unhappy with a very conservative Supreme Court in the 1930s, that the best way to counteract them was to appeal directly to the American people and to have them come out on election day. And I, and I know part of that is raising money, but I think it's, it, I don't think the American Constitutional Society can possibly bear that burden, that, that it has to be a whole bunch uh, of political action groups on the left mobilizing around elections. And then once you get in the White House, you have to sort of prioritize um, appointing judges. And I do think the Biden administration deserves some credit um, that they have made um, nominating judges when there are openings a big priority that they uh, one of the knocks on the Obama administration was that they were a little slow to appoint Supreme Court justices and to appoint lower court justices. And I think they, they would argue that, look, we were caught up with the health care debate, and that's a fair point. But I think Biden has realized that, hey, we can't play um, hardball when the other side, softball when the other side's playing hardball. We have to play hardball, too, and we have to um, fill as many vacancies as we can. And I think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of that. Well, Brad Snyder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Brad Snyder, who's a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law, constitutional history, and sports law. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, The Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. And he has an article at CNN, How Liberals Should Rethink Their View of the Supreme Court. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh